Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the final episode of Jesus Yesterday, Today, and Forever. Today is forever. I talk with Andrew Ferris, one of our Theo nerds here at Coastline Covenant Church, about the end times or eschatology. I just will say this. This is a feast of a conversation. Andrew is incredibly smart and has a lot to say about this topic, and you would absolutely do well to listen to this episode with a notebook and a Bible out because Andrew and I get into it. We dispel common misconceptions about things like the rapture and the end times. We also just really ground things like the book of Revelation and what's to come in the future in a really practical sense of hope. I really loved this conversation. I always love talking with Andrew, but this in particular was a super fun moment for me to just sit, listen, and interact a very little bit. So I hope you like this podcast. I hope you like this whole series. I really enjoy talking to some really smart people about some really big topics, and we are excited for everything to come next on the podcast, which will be about our new teaching series. You'll hear all about that next week. But for now, enjoy this conversation with Andrew, and we will see you next week and every single week after that. We are here with the final episode, Jesus Yesterday, Today, and Forever. Today is forever. Wow, that's deep. That's That sounds like an emo song if I've ever heard one. Today is forever. True or false, you once wrote a song called Today is Forever. False. Okay. It was called Yesterday is Forever. Actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it was uh, It was uh, called, I don't know what it was called. Anyway, I'm here with Andrew Ferris, Theo nerd, family theologian. Which do you prefer? I don't care. Okay. Whatever, whatever you think is... The best is he's apathetic towards what you call him, but (laughs) to me, I will call him friend, one of the smartest people I know, to talk about something that when I immediately had the your name in my head, it was like Andrew's going to be the one that we talk about the end times with, and I pitched it to Sean and I pitched it to you, and you both said the same thing. You both were like, I don't know if I'm the person to have that conversation, and then we were hanging out, and I I kind of teased out a little bit why I wanted you on the podcast and I will tell the story I was at Biola at one point in my life and I was in a class where somebody gave a presentation on something they called premillennial odd dispensationalism which is a made-up thing did they say odd dispensationalism they did are you sure yes so that person didn't understand what they were talking about a but b I think they're trying to be controversial and say this is my take no one's ever thought of this before Uh, anyway before you continue you basically just did exactly what you did when I pitched this to you before. You're like, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's so dumb. Here's why it's dumb. And yeah. I'm like, do you not see why you're the perfect person to talk about this with? And so that's why you're here, Andrew, to talk about all things end times. And and to, to long- Well, what was your reaction to that, to that when it happened? I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. This was undergrad, second semester of my last year at Biola. I was as good as out of there. I mean, I know a lot of personal stuff was happening at that time. Like, it was not a good season for me. And yeah. so this guy's talking about pre-mill, on-mill, post-mill. And I'm like, later, mill. I'm out of here. I do not <laughs> I do not engage with this at all. Looking back, I wish I had because then maybe I'd have more to say right now. Maybe I'd be interviewing you. Yeah, maybe the tables would have turned and you'd be like, Hunter, tell me all about this end times thing. But I'm excited because you are the guy to talk to about this. And, and to launch us into it, I'm going to read you some some things. And I want you to tell me if this resonates with you at all as you think about the end times. That's great. It starts with an earthquake. Birds and snakes and aeroplanes. (laughs) Lenny Bruce is not afraid. Eye of a hurricane. Listen to yourself churn. World serves its own needs. Don't misserve your own needs. Feeding off an ox. Speak grunt. No strength. The ladder starts to clatter with fear fight. Down height. Wire in a fire. Representing seven games and a government for hire in a combat site. Do you know what this is, Andrew? It's the end of the world as we know it. Is it? Is this the end of the world as we know it? In the REM song, 
which I just quoted. Michael Stipe, lyricist, main singer of REM, is is illustrating events like a government for hire combat site. There is uh, reporters baffled. There are people losing common food. The the rapture, patriotic fights. Is that the end of the world? Uh, it's funny because I like. I do. I think with that song in the past, I did the same thing that everybody else does. Which Don't know go, the bah, words. Da, 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 da. Yeah. <laughs> I like like the melody and think it's cool. But, um, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know enough about uh, paying attention to, to the lyrics. Uh, I have not paid attention to the lyrics enough to do that. But you're right. People have a cataclysmic sense of what's going to happen yes. uh, in terms of some future thing that will be really, yeah, cataclysmic. Horrible. Yeah. Terrible. I, I resonate a lot with, there's a Wilco song where Jeff Tweedy, the singer of Wilco, says, every generation thinks it's the end of the world. And it's because it's such a, poignant thought that this is the worst things have ever been nothing could possibly get better therefore we are trending downward i think we yeah. saw this a lot during the pandemic yep. i think you know you couple covid with all of the racial tensions and the election that year it just felt like things haven't been this bad before and so as a christian when you see these things happening are we like yep it's over this is it or how as a christian do you respond to the idea someone comes into Coastline on Sunday and says, oh, world's ending, look how bad it is out there. What would you say to that? I have a complicated relationship with that question. I I think there are a few things all going on at the same time there. So one of them is that Jeff Tweedy might be right, which yeah. is that everybody does have a sense that, that things are bad. And I, I think that maybe we should pause and notice that and and notice that there seems to be something human about being aware of the breadth of the problems in the world mm. that, uh, and, and there's, there are so many problems. Um, and that's true. It's just an undeniable fact that there's like a, an incredible amount of problems in the world. Uh, so, so there's, so that's probably the first thing I would say is that there, there is some element of that. And I, I do actually think that gets to something theological in a minute about, about uh, the way we should approach biblical and theological questions about the, uh, the end of the world. I'll say two other things about that, though. One of them is that I think in today's world, one of the great temptations of our times is to be angry and anxious all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a media culture that is built on generating your interest, um, monetizing your interest, and doing that by telling you bad news. That's just sort of like uh, fear and anger get the most clicks. And so uh, it's just a simple financial incentive for, for media companies. So um, it's not an accident that those, th those things come across your feed and get high engagement and all those things on the internet um, because fear and anger get the most clicks. And so that, that again, reflects something about us, not really about the media companies. If, or, I mean, the media companies want to make money. That's what companies want to do. So I guess that reflects something about them. But I think it, the fact that humans respond so much to that, again, says something about our attuneness to that kind of thing. The fascinating thing about that, though, is actually the world is the best it's ever been. And this is sort of like... Also, actually an obvious fact, if you look around at it, that like global poverty is basically on the way to being eliminated. Uh, and like liter like literacy is up all over the world. Education of women is up all over the world. Every possible way you look at it, the world is getting significantly richer and particularly the poorest of the poor. Like clean water is like much less of a problem than it used to be. It's still a big problem. Don't get me wrong. There's still people and every single person who can't read is 
extremely poor and doesn't have access to clean water is a problem that should be solved uh, in, in the sense of like, we, we should care about this till the end. But uh, the, it's, it's this remarkable back and forth at the same time that the world is getting um, on those measures, like drastically better. And even in like in the last hundred years, it's, it's happened at like a blistering pace where people are really solving these problems. And I, I think that's an interesting back and forth actually that like, the world is actually getting way better than we think, and yet we're still really attuned to these things. And then I'll say one other thing about humans, which is that humans are also really attuned to transcendence all over the place. Uh, and it's another thing that people respond to. Like people want to go out and go to national parks and go to Yosemite and experience it because it opens up something in our hearts in really big ways. And I think all of that reflects something about what it's like to be a human in the world. Um, and I think there's theology in that. And there's eschatology in it. So I'll pause there so I don't wow. unpack it too much. But. Wow. That was a lot. You said a lot of things I really, really liked and I really resonated with. Um, and I think the main point is just the end of the world's popular. To believe it's the end of the world. And then you see it also like in so much art. You know, you have movies and, and TV shows. And I think how, how many Marvel movies are just about cataclysmic world ending events and, and heroes needing to save the world. But there's still so much damage. And I just think it's like one of the most popular things in our world but if you go to the church world preaching christ's return preaching um you know some sort of like end of the world situation not super popular you know you're not like driving people into seats because you're like we're doing a series on the end times unless you're like here are 10 reasons the end times are going to be on this date right so why do you think in your opinion it's christ's return is like one of the most underpreached parts of not only just like Christian theology, but like the gospel message itself. So I reject the premise a little bit. In, oh no! In, in the sense we that we can't argue. Well, well, what I'll say is I'm. I always want to be a little hesitant to say, "Here's what's happening in the church, capital C," because I actually only have my experience with my little part in a little right. bit of the internet, right? Um, so I don't really know. And there are still large and thriving move- movements that preach sort of end times prophecy. Mm-hmm all the time. Um, but okay. <laughs> okay. Let's, let me ask you this. Yeah, then. sure. Those people preaching end time prophecy quote all the time. Is that good? Well, so this is, this gets to the other part of my answer to your question. Um, I think that people have two reactions. Many people, I don't know about it's, you know, again, I haven't studied, I don't have a survey and objective study of this, but I think many people have one of two reactions too. Um, end times preaching and we'll call it eschatology study the last thing yeah. you, you guys to find that term on so study the last thing study the, study them um, and really I would say eschatology is about the study of, of the timeline of scripture uh, is, is probably the way yeah. I would maybe broaden it some more the idea that history and scripture exists on a timeline and a plan as opposed to just sort of happens a real timeline yeah with real people and it's really happening and yeah it really and that there's and that there's plans of God that are in, that are happening mm. in the world on timelines. And so you can talk about that. So um, anyway, um, I think people have tended to be, in my experience and in what I observe broadly in American Christianity in particular, either uh, on the one hand, over-interested in eschatology to where there is like a really deep desire to sort of untangle all of the um, it's, uh, it's to like, uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? D- uh, decipher. Decipher yeah. is the right word, right? Like, and that word you think about like the idea of a cipher, like mm-hmm. the idea of like a, of a puzzle 
that needs solving and you have to use a cipher to solve it. So like to decipher the puzzles, you know? Like this means this and Correct. you can understand that now yeah. and this that, helps you. Yeah. That approach to the end times is a distinctly American approach and it's a distinctly 20th century approach. Say, very new. Yeah, and um, and came from some theologians in the 20th century and some pastors in the 20th century and really exploded in that time to where at some point Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, was like the most popular book in America, which I think is like the 80s or something like that. Mm-hmm. He had massive influence. Um, and so at some point that was a real huge thing. And I think that approach to the end times uh, is not, is mostly not that helpful. Um, and is mostly, yeah, is mostly unhelpful, I would say. Um, uh, there's some ways in which I think it's helpful actually too. And I can talk about that, but there's mostly not that helpful. So I think the other thing that happens is there's a lot of people who see that stuff are not interested and go the extreme other way. And so they they just like never want, I was actually talking to a friend recently and didn't think about this before this podcast. Who's just like revelation stinks. It's not a good book. I don't like it. And it was because he'd been exposed to a lot of terrible teaching on or a lot of teaching on revelation. That was just, he just didn't like it at all. It was not helpful and all those things. And it, and it had had the exact opposite effect on him, which had just sort of like, um, it's like a serious believer, by the way. He was just so, he was expressing his frustration with that kind of thing. And so I think there's a lot of people who feel that way too about it. And so there's no, there's no way into this. But the problem is something that you brought up, which is that the New Testament talks about it all the time. Yes. It is a really present thing. It's really important. Even if you just boil down to, you know, in these three remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Uh, hope is one of the three that remains. And hope there, you know, is sort of a signal of, of, uh, you know, that word is, uh, is like the song title to a much longer song, right? Which is <laughs> yeah, like all about this whole concept of sort of what is still in front of us and what Jesus will do. And when Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples, I'm going to come back yeah. in just this way in Acts 1, right? So um, so it's a really important New Testament theme. It's a, it's a biblical theme broadly, but the New Testament develops it in these specific ways. Um, and so I think there are dangers on both sides. One of them is to be so frustrated by some of that to go away from it. The other one is to sort of get so deep that you want to decipher all the codes, which I think is, is probably not the most helpful way to handle these passages. Isn't it so fascinating too? How often do you hear people say, and again, I don't mean to make broad generalizations after you yelled at me last time, I'll, I'll try not to do that. But you have like so many people who say like, we're going to be an old, we're going to be an early church, an Acts church, right? Like uh, we want to be as close to the, the disciples and Jesus as possible. And it's like the dominant worldview of every single person in the New Testament is Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Like this is as present as anything. And so if we really want to be a church like that, like we should be living our lives in a way that is like, whoa, this is, this could happen at any time. So, so that, that's one of the things I would say is sort of good about some of that uh, approach to, to teaching that I think whatever else there's to say about teaching the uh, revelation and teaching eschatology via sort of like, you know, this symbol equals this exact yes. thing in history. And, you know, uh, maybe if some people don't know what I'm talking about, right, it would be sort of like, you know, uh, the, the classic. The mark of the beast, the one world government. Right, exactly. The mark of the beast is, the, I mean, there's all kinds of things people would say about that, right? But, like, it's like a chip that gets implanted in you, and that's the mark, whatever. And they would they would try to pin it to very specific events. I, I don't think that way of approaching uh, revelation and of eschatology in general is very helpful. One thing I do think is I, I appreciate about that is that people are A, taking the Bible as seriously as they can, uh, and B, 
they are, and they're really trying to believe it's true, but B, they have a, an, an imminent expectation, an eager expectation that Jesus will come back at some point and that he'll come back soon mm-hmm. and that that really matters. And I do think that's the thing that we lose uh, yeah. when, when we when we kind of avoid the topic for that stuff, that it, one of the things that goes away with that is the sense that Jesus will, will come back. And that's a problem. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a problem because our hope in the return of Christ is a glorious doctrine. It is... It really matters personally. And this is also another reason people avoid eschatology is they go like, does it really matter if I, who cares if I'm a millennial? When I was in, when I was in seminary, the joke was always like, I'm not a millennial, I'm pan millennial. Everything pans out in the end. And that's what I believe. And it's like, Woof. yeah, great. Yeah. Super good joke. Anyway, but like, um, and people sort of would refuse to go into it. And, and whether you have a strong position about when the millennium happens, and I would say I have a below average intensity opinion <laughs> relative to my other opinions. Yeah, I was going to say, have a pretty high that's pretty unique on this particular question. What I don't want to do is avoid it because I do want to maintain eager expectation for the return of Christ because man, the thing I was talking about earlier, which is like people recognize the the reality of suffering in the world is so strong that I don't, I just think having some eager expectation that Jesus will make things right is so encouraging and helpful and it's something that I, I not only long for but want to long for more um, and having some sense of that because yeah otherwise I, I just don't know how you deal with the, the the pure especially with our global connectivity to the raw volume of pain in the world I don't know how you deal with that without having some sense that oh my gosh maybe actually Jesus really will come and put that stuff to rest and, and put that stuff to end. So yeah, and global connectivity to the raw volume of pain was my other emo song. So uh, <laughs> I just wanted to just maybe plug yeah. my old emo band. So you you said it. You know, it, it's such a hopeful thing, and it's something that really matters. And then you said like this is a really important doctrine. So let's let's talk doctrine, which I think is going to be very helpful for people because again, we can get lost in the weeds of the deciphering or the apathy. Once I think we put some skin on the the bones of this conversation through doctrine. I think people will be really, really blessed. And so I'm going to just kind of give you some terms that you hear often in a conversation like this. And I would just love for you to kind of parse them out for people, especially as if, you know, maybe we've never talked about this before. Maybe never heard it before. So Andrew, I come to you and I say, the rapture is coming. What do I mean by a rapture? What is a rapture? Where do we see it in the Bible? And is the rapture coming? Would it be okay if we backed up a step? Of course, Andrew. And, and then and then maybe handle those downstream from that. Yes. Okay. So what's the what is it? So what let's is it first? so let's start from what I think is is some of the broad stuff we should understand to get this right. Yes. The, so the first is this idea that there's a biblical timeline, that there are there's like an age, quote unquote, like that's the the, the uh, you know a, a section of time mm-hmm. essentially defined by certain markers. The Bible would frame up. Uh, ages as uh as among the ways that it would frame this up would be the present evil age and the age to come so the age we're in now and the age to come would be these two different sort of like parts of the timeline of scripture and within those things in the old testament right they're expecting that the end of the age to come or excuse me the end of the present evil age um the expectation is that the messiah will come he'll bring the age to come the kingdom he'll bring his kingdom and his kingdom reign over the whole earth uh, would end the present evil age and would bring to fruition all the promises of God in the Old Testament in the covenants to Abraham and David and etc. So um, 
uh, and ultimately in, in Jeremiah 31, right? And then in the new covenant. So, um, so that was their expectation. The, the, one of the things that most throws people off in Jesus' day about Jesus' teaching is that he says, the weeds uh, and the wheat will actually grow up together alongside each other. That the, age, that the, the kingdom and, of God and the present evil age will actually exist together for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the phrase you hear people use is inaugurated eschatology, the idea that the kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet. So we experience it in real ways, but that also we're waiting for, for Jesus to do something. Now that's, that's really helpful, um, I think, to, as a starting place because this explains to some degree why we see so much pain despite that Jesus has come, despite that his love is real, despite that the Spirit's here, despite that we have changed hearts, all these things, because it's already and it's not yet, and we experience both those things in significant ways. Um, okay, so the other element of that is that... Is that um, I think this is a Mark Twain quote, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Um, and that is a good way of thinking about the way that God works in history, I think, in, in the world, that God sets up in the timeline of scripture uh, patterns that rhyme with one another and get repeated throughout. So like a, an example would be the Exodus and the return from exile in the Old Testament, right? So, um, so God's people are in slavery to sin, and then they have a promised deliverance, and then uh, and then they're delivered. And when they're delivered, they are brought out uh, across a long bunch of land, uh, and then they go back to the promised land. Right. Well, then later on, when God's people are taken captive once again, there is a promise that the captivity will end, and they'll be taken back across along a bunch of land, and then they will go into the promised land. When uh, Jesus comes and he goes into the wilderness for forty days and forty nights, we've been talking. We were talking about this passage uh, in my community group the other day. When he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights um, to be tempted by Satan, it's not an accident that he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. It is a repetition of the 40 years that Jesus spent in the uh, that the Israelites spent in the wilderness. Jesus is reenacting that history, which also has some references to the exile and some of those things. And so these patterns um, keep coming up over and over again. And I think the main way we should think about things like uh, some of the terms that I think we're going to have in mind here, like uh, maybe a, a concept like tribulation would be in here or something yep. like that, is that it is in that repeating pattern. Day of the Lord is another concept that comes up here. Like what's the day of the Lord? That it does that same thing. That there are these moments that are sort of moments where you see it especially strongly, but that, that those patterns get repeated and that all of those are then heading towards a future where Jesus returns finally once for all and the present evil age is no more. Ultimately, finally is something that's like completely squashed. You get to the end of Revelation and like the victory is complete and done and uh, and that was inaugurated on the cross. The victory is inaugurated on the cross is now consummated completely as Revelation 20 and 21 unfold and, and Jesus returns and puts to death Satan and puts to death death and uh, and all those kinds of things and reigns uh, with no more tears and, and no more sadness. And so, um, so yeah, so that I think is the broad scope of what the Bible is doing and the way we should think about um what happens? We should look for those patterns. We should expect the convergence of current ages and finally the eventual elimination of the present evil age. Uh, and that, that would get you to most of the way there. And you're saying that the Bible signals towards this consistently. Correct. Throughout scripture, there is a sense of backwards looking, present looking, and forward looking, all related to God's actions in, in history, basically. Yeah. And that's, it's really funny that you mentioned it that way. Cause that was the whole impetus of this podcast series of yes. like, how can we find some of those design patterns or some of those things that recur specifically Jesus yeah. and, and the idea of a Messiah and you know, his work in his death and his resurrection. How can we look back and see them? How can we look at the contemporary and see them? And then how can in this conversation look forward and see them? And so 
before I, so maybe this is not helpful. Maybe this is helpful. Maybe you, you don't want to enter this right now. Oh, maybe it's fine. Yeah. But so if, if there's all of these like design patterns in the Bible that lead, you know, to the cross or to, to Jesus, what does Jesus's death and resurrection show us about eschatology or show us about the end times? Like if there's a design pattern in that, what are we looking for in the future? Yeah. So, um, so one of the points here is that Jesus's death and resurrection are the climax, at least to now, you could say there's a sort of a second climax later of those actions in history, right? Mm-hmm. So the ultimate exodus that happens is, is the exodus that happens for us via the death and resurrection of Jesus as we are redeemed from slavery to sin. Um, you know, there's even some ways in which you see that pattern happen, like with the cross, right? So for example, um, do you remember, uh, well, so when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, uh, they have fig leaves at first that they're covering themselves with, but when they're kicked out, God makes for them animal skin mm-hmm. clothes, right? And so there's sort of like part of the way that their nakedness is covered in the ongoing way is by God providing for them via the death of an animal, essentially, right away. Um, and it's an act of grace by God to them to care for them as they go sort of in this next thing. And then he arms them with the promise that he's going, that he's, they're going to crush the serpent's head or that the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head, right? Um, so there's that, right? And then, of course, in the Exodus, the, the, the um, Passover happens via the blood of the lamb on the doors, right? Um, and then uh, there's the sacrificial system where there's a sacrifice ongoing um, where people are covered from their sins uh, via sacrifice. And so then in the cross, you have, of course, this final version of that. This is sort of an example of this that everybody knows where, where ultimately sin is, is finally paid for via our exodus from sin and our return from exile, both of which are examples that the New Testament picks up on and, mm-hmm. and interprets the cross via those lenses and says that we have received a sort of a spiritual exodus and a spiritual return from exile via the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And so those become these moments. Now, the thing is, in the Old Testament, those moments happen, are all those moments are also happening via judgment. Uh, and that like the judgment of God is is a big part of how salvation happens for people. Um, that the repeatedly God saves via His judgment on on the sinner somewhere along the way. Um, and so what happens ultimately at the cross then is that the judgment of God and His work of salvation um, is heightened to this extreme or to, to the to the highest level via His judgment of our sin on Jesus as the mechanism for uh, our forgiveness and for our return from our exile and from our return from Exodus. Okay, so that pattern plays itself out there. And what does that have to do with eschatology before we get to the resurrection? What that, what that has to do with eschatology is that uh, I think one of, one of the ways that, uh, for example, that the Bible frames this issue is it talks about this coming judgment in the Old Testament via the phrase, the day of the Lord. Uh, right. right. So the day of the Lord is... It, all over the place in the prophets. It's a phrase that gets used in a bunch of different places. A couple of the key examples here that get picked up on really directly in, by Jesus in Matthew 24 um, are Joel 2, Isaiah 13, I think. I have the reference here. Yeah, yeah Isaiah 13, 6. So in those passages, for example, uh, uh, the day of the Lord is this day of an incredible amount of God's judgment on sin as part of this process uh you know, in along the steps of God also redeeming people at different times. And so the judgment on sin is part of it. So anyway, the, um, I think when, when Matt, so, so in Matthew's account of the crucifixion, after Jesus talks about the idea that the day of the Lord is coming, uh, and he talks about, it's going to be earthquakes and he's referencing all of this kind of language directly in Matthew 24, uh, about how this day, this day of the Lord is going to come, etc. 
um, there's going to be, the sun is going to be turned dark. There's going to be really big earthquakes and all these things. Well, Matthew then frames up at the cross when Jesus dies, when he breathes mm-hmm. his last. Matthew makes a point of saying it's noon. It's the sixth hour. It's noon. And then says the whole land goes dark. Uh, why? Well, because Joel 2, Isaiah 13, um, both predict that in the day of the Lord, the sun will be turned to darkness. Then there's a big earthquake. And both of those passages and some other ones as well talked about this idea of earthquakes. So the point, I think, is that Matthew is signaling to you with some of these events, this is the day of the Lord. The cross is the day of the Lord. It's this moment of judgment that's happening. Uh, now, of course, Jesus overcomes the judgment, overcomes the pain of death in his resurrection. But then there's a prefiguring later on of something that will eventually happen again, which is another repetition of this idea of the day of the Lord, mm-hmm. when that judgment will reach to uh, to uh, the rest of uh, the those who've rejected uh, Jesus and his message, basically. And so there's an ex- there's sort of this other version of that in the future that as the day of the Lord comes. So um, now the resurrection, there's one more thing here, which is that it's bodily. Um, Jesus rises from the dead physically, and that tells us something about what we should expect the um, end in the end times, which is that it, what we're headed towards here is not heaven forever, not spiritual heaven forever. What we're headed towards is a new creation. And the new creation, which Jesus inaugurates in his resurrection, is physical and it's bodily and it's the restoration of all things. And in that respect, um, we should see the bodily resurrection of Jesus as a signal that all of this is something that he goes and does for us, in front of us, and we'll go do that with him. Again, the Bible picks up on this all over the place. It's, you can't read First Thessalonians without seeing this right. conversation come up, the idea that we'll be raised again. You can't read First Corinthians 15 without seeing this come up, the whole idea that our bodies will be raised with Jesus so our bodies are not a problem or in the sense of like, it's not like, oh, well, really, we're souls, but we have these bodies, unfortunately, attached to right. us. Like, our bodies are part of God's design for us. They're part of who we are. And so, um, ultimately, there will be a final resurrection, and death will be defeated. Do you want to take a sip of water? You just, <laughs> you just went for it. I, well, I mean, yeah, it's a big question. <laughs> I I really, really think in this conversation, Jesus, yesterday, today, and forever, it's so crucial for us to recognize that, like, the timeline of the Bible is simultaneously back and forward yeah right and so you read something like the crucifixion and it's important to understand what's happening there because it's going to help you understand what's happening in the future and so i think you just made a really compelling case for the one person or the people who are listening who are saying like end times don't matter to me and you ask well does the cross matter to you that's right does does the old testament matter to you because it's all heading towards that which i think is a really really compelling point to make in our Day and age, because yeah. I think so many people of our generation are so turned off on the idea of end times because of the way in which it does get hijacked politically or with certain sure. pieces of theology that we don't agree with or that make us uncomfortable. And Andrew, what I really love about what you did is you just yanked it out of that space and you just said, what, what am I saying that's not in there? Yeah, yeah. let's keep it in Let's keep it in the timeline and in the, in the, in the unfolding of Scripture, the way Scripture does it for us. Yeah. Um, there's a temptation now constantly to go and sort of, now pick apart when do all those next things happen or whatever, right? right? And you're saying leave it, leave it. Yeah, to so the- because part of it is because there's these, there's this is part of why Jeff Tweedy is right, right? The idea that everybody sees these things happening. The, I would say in some ways the pain that we see in the world are all ongoing, um, are all ongoing sort of examples in some ways and little little places where. Um, this pops up in the world where there's this ext- these sometimes these extreme amounts of pain and difficulty that are all reminiscent of of those ways in which the world is really hard that we think of 
as part of the quote unquote end times, but actually they may just be re repetitions of these broader patterns um, that are going on for a long time as part of the present evil age coexisting even with the, the current age. Okay. So you keep saying present evil age. And so does that mean we're in the end times right now? Yes. So this is a crucial thing. So, but what I would say is the church has been in the end times for its entire existence. So for 2000 years, the church has been in the end times. Um, so a couple, so you, you talked about the rapture earlier. So now we can situate that a little bit, right? So I would say the rapture as people understand it, and this may be something that is challenging for some people. I don't know. I would say it's not a biblical teaching. Um, there's, there's two passages that people go to very often. Um, and I would say neither of them tell us that there is such a thing as the rapture. So one of them is Matthew 24, 40, or is the notion that there's two people in a field, one's taken and one's still there. The idea is that being taken is good, uh, that being taken is you get raptured to go be with, uh, with Jesus. To get left behind is bad. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is actually that's almost exactly wrong. In the context of the passage, the one getting taken is the one who's, that where the problem is that like yes. that's you want to be the one in the field because you're not getting taken to go be with Jesus there you're getting taken because there's judgment coming from external powerful forces in the world in that case probably Rome would have been the you know the core one that, that they would have been thinking of uh where that like you know you're taken essentially to suffer so yeah. that, that's that's the idea you're taken away you're kidnapped essentially right right that's the notion um, so I would say that passage is about that. And then 1 Thessalonians 4.17, where it talks about believers being caught up in the air, actually is referring to like when Jesus returns. And so mm -hmm. it's like the final last thing that happens. It's not, uh, and so that respect, it's not like a rapture where you're removed from any of the current like quote unquote end times. And that passage is Paul trying to encourage people who That's are right. like, yeah. wait, what happened to everybody who died? Yeah, are they're they nervous that their, their dead friends are yeah. like not going to get to experience the return of Christ. And Paul's like, don't worry. Yeah. Like, he's like, he's going to come back that. and take care of them. It's all going to work right. out. And, and when we talk about rapture, you know, this idea of being caught up, caught up, taken away, I think people's minds immediately go to like the left behind or yes. like, you know, one day you and I will be hanging out, maybe getting coffee somewhere. And then I blink. Bro time. And, maybe and on a Monday night. Monday night bro time at a coffee shop, of course. And I look over and it's just your hat and your shirt and your pants are sitting there. Coffee cup hits the ground. I look around. The barista is gone, but the guy next to me is not. And, this moment of sheer chaos right. right and is that you don't see that in the bible i don't think so i think i you know the the place where you would see it most be those two passages that i said and i don't i don't i think both of those are pretty it's pretty flawed interpretations to come up with uh with that reading of either passage and and i mean you're you're in marketing i'm not but like <laughs> as as you think about these passages like in you're trying to market like a christian end times series you you use those passages and you can really get that much life out of them. I mean, it's within a broader system. And this is the thing that happened with eschatology in the 20th century is that like people, I mean, they started drawing out like exactly every single thing in these ways that were like, that are really, really detailed. And I was going to, this becomes part of it, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm team no rapture. Yeah. I, that's something that I, I have no. talked about in office and I won't say which members of the Sean pastoral staff have had concerns and thoughts about it, but I think that it's yeah. really important for us to be able to have this dialogue of saying like, no, this is what I see. This is what I see. And just like Paul trying to encourage believers in that passage, like it's a really encouraging notion either way, right? Like yeah. whether or not that's going to happen, I think it's an encouraging notion. So that's, that's kind of like pre-revelation stuff. And in Revelation, if, if someone's going to open it and read it, they're going to see a lot of imagery. They're going to see dragons and um, just, I mean, I can't even begin. There, there, yeah. There's so many things happening in the book of Revelation that just don't make sense to us today. But some of the things we can understand is kind of like what you're saying, like age, timeline stuff. And in Revelation, there's this concept of a millennium. 
Yep. So, so what, if I'm reading Revelation, I see that, what am I seeing? What does that mean? Yeah. So Revelation 20, second to last chapter of the Bible. Was it, wait, is there 22 chapters? In Revelation? 22. Yeah. Okay. So third to last chapter of the Bible. Um, there's a reference to Jesus coming and reigning for a thousand years while um, putting Satan basically in prison, uh, so to speak. And then there's like a last time where Satan gets let, let out after that. And then the end comes after that. Right. So that, that thousand year period is what people call the millennium. Uh, and there are a number of different ways to approach what the millennium is. Some people would say we're in it right now and it's a spiritual millennium. Um, other people would say we're not there yet. Other people would say we're building the world towards that actually. And we're moving steadily towards a millennium. And um, some people say literal millennium. Some people say literal thousand years. Some people don't. Uh, yeah. Like, so if you believe the millennium is right now, you, you, you're not literal. You're not team literal thousand years. That would be called an amillennialist. And that person is not, they don't, they don't believe it's a literal thousand years. This is something people have disagreed about and thought about a lot of different ways. Um, all kinds of interesting ways. So, so maybe there's, um, a couple comments you can make. One of them would be for a little while, belief in the millennium was sort of a shibboleth for your belief in the authority of scripture. Andrew, you gotta say what a shibboleth is. Sorry, it's like a, <laughs> it's a dog whistle is another phrase like that. Yeah, it would be, it's a right, way to indicate yeah, right. that someone knows or doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah, uh, so, so, so basically like the idea that if you didn't believe in a, um, if you weren't pre-millennial, if you didn't believe in a literal millennium, it's because the reason people cared about this issue a lot is because that signaled you didn't take scripture seriously. Mm. So the doctrine they really cared about was the authority of scripture and the, and the millennial view was actually a way to validate the authority of scripture. I think there's something similar going on with young earth thinking oh, now, which is like, I don't think actually, I think some people for a lot of people, and I, if you're listening to this and you have different views, it's okay. Like I, you can view whatever you want to view here, but like, um, I think the main reason people care about the age of the earth is not really because of the age of the earth. It's because they want to take the Bible seriously and they, and they want, they want the doctrine of scripture to be upheld. And there's a concern that like, wait a minute, is Genesis wrong about the creation of the earth? Right. So that's what I think a lot of that is about. So, um, so there's sort of like a thing underneath the thing. Um, so that is part of why that I think became a, an important issue, especially in the 20th century. That was, that was, uh, an important thing there, but it's also been a historically relevant doctrine for people. Um, so for example, um, many of the, um, early American Christians who came in particular, some of the American Puritans, uh, the idea of, of America as a city set on a hill um, mm -hmm. and founding that. Um, the Puritans, um, who are get a bad rap, but there's a lot of great Puritan literature and a lot of it is really worth exploring. Um, the Puritans, um, their theological position was post-millennialism, which is the belief that they were, were building towards the millennium and that part of what their hope was in sort of coming to America was that they would be creating a city set on a hill, so to speak, so that would be sort of a mass conversion event that would move people towards the eventual sort of bettering of the world until Christ came back. And then that would, that would be that. So, um, anyway, there's, there's ways in which this actually plays out in people's actions and behaviors in significant ways. Um, I think the way it's most relevant is sort of in thinking about what do you expect of the world, uh, right now? I think there's a way in which if you believe that we are going to have to wait until Jesus comes back for everything to be fixed, it changes a little bit of my political expectations and my justice expectations in the world. It, hopefully it doesn't change my love for my neighbor and my engagement with the world and those kinds of things. Um, but in terms of my ability to um, engage with those things and then just like weep over sin as opposed to, um, uh, I don't know, no, no, I, I think to go deeply into and to weep with those who weep, um, I think it's possible to do, to, it's, it's uh, if you have an expectation 
that there will always be pain. Hopefully your eyes will be open to it around you. That's what I'm trying to say. And that you'll continue to see it as a real thing and be ready to go into it with and offer people um, grace and hope in the midst of those things and be able to weep with them in the midst of it and lament deeply, uh, even as you also seek to, you know, as Jeremiah says, seek to go to the city and to love your neighbor as yourself and those kinds of things and put an end to it wherever you can, right? Um, but, but yeah. So you'd say that's post-millennial thinking? So I would say that that would be sort of pre-millennial thinking. I think post-millennial thinking. thinking would be like, let's keep solving all of it forever until it's all fixed. And mm. I think, I don't want to, there's a way that'd be too simplistic. I don't, I'm not saying either one of them is like, I'm not saying either one of them um, gives somebody an excuse to to not engage with cultural problems around them or something like that. What I'm saying um, is just that perhaps it changes your expectations for what's going to happen in the world and for then how you respond to that and even how you steal yourself for the hard realities of life and what you expect in the return of Jesus and how eagerly you, you await those things. So that's the millennium. And then people will often interchange it. And I don't know if this is accurate or helpful with like an idea of like a tribulation, like there's a tribulation, then a millennium, millennium, tribulation, good, bad, bad, good millennium. So tribulation, where, where is that? What do we, you know, what's going on? Yep. So the word tribulation comes up a couple times in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, probably the other most famous long section of eschatology in the Bible besides revelation. It's Jesus's Olivet discourse. Um, and because he spoke it on the Mount of Olives, um, so tribulation comes up a couple times there. My take is not that the tribulation is so much a defined specific time uh, within sort of a series of heightened problems in the end of the world, but that there is ongoing tribulations throughout the church age. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I would say we're in the end times now. So that there's tribulations ongoing repeatedly. This is one of those patterns that happens again and again right. and includes all kinds of difficult things. I actually think that what Jesus is talking about specifically in the, those passages, particularly when he talks about the idea that this is all going to happen in his lifetime and in this generation, which is insistent in Matthew. So Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 16, Matthew 24, he repeats the idea that this generation won't pass away until these things happen. Right. I think what he's referring to there is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, that there's a judgment on the Jews, the end of the old covenant system. That is a truly cataclysmic event in the in the history of God's story in the world. I mean, that is the end of the sacrificial system. The temple has still never been rebuilt since then. That is the end of it. And uh, and it has massive impact on that. So um, so this, is, this, is, this would take us too far to get into it. But I think what Jesus is basically saying there is that that generation of people is going to see it, which they did. It happened in AD 70 uh, and Matthew would have been written you know, within 20 years of that, uh, depending on who you ask, basically. Um, we don't know exactly. So um, so Jesus seems to predict that. And then um, and then I also think what Jesus is saying to them is that there's, there's also a way in which that is a pattern that prefigures what eventually will happen with the nations and judgment on the nations in their own wickedness in different ways. The interesting thing is a lot of the language Jesus uses there uh, to talk about the destruction of the temple and like this quote-unquote tribulation on on these people is picked up from the Old Testament's language of judgment on Babylon. So he actually associates Jerusalem at that time with Babylon. And all of that comes on the back of some very harsh words for the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders in Matthew 23, just before that. So there's a lot there and you can go really deep. I actually love those passages, but, um, but that idea that there's sort of a, a prefiguring that's happening, the judgment on Israel ends up prefiguring the judgment on the nations. And Babylon also as a pattern. Correct. In the Bible. Yeah, 100%. You know, you find Jesus Babylon. Jesus picks it up in Matthew 24 in Revelation. That was my exact yeah. my exact point of Babylon yeah. beginning in Genesis 11 as this, you know, moment where God comes and scatters the nations. You know, That's right. this, this thing that you're saying, it, you can look back and forth and everywhere and it's everywhere. And the nations are 
first referenced as part of the plan here in Genesis 12, way, yes. way back there. That yes. As Abraham's seed is a blessing to the nation. The table of nations, as yes. we would see later on in Genesis. Yep. But I think it's so compelling that you can read the Bible, and if you keep certain things in the forefront of your mind, it is it is rhyming. It is, yes. it is, it is a story that is, is so long. And I think God knew, like, I want you to get the whole thing and it would not serve you well if I just kept telling a different story every time. Like yeah. this whole thing is, is folding on top of itself. And Babylon is such a good example because it takes us all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So yes. Babylon, you know, is an, is an archetype of, of a city of, of evil and Tim Mackey from the Bible project, the way that he articulates Babylon. I love it's a city or a, a group of people, a civilization who have decided what good and evil is for themselves. Interesting. And you see that in the garden, that was kind of what happens. And then from the garden, you get Cain and Abel and then Noah and then Abraham and then, you know, before Abraham Tower of Babel. And, and that's now do the whole rest of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then there's, uh, <laughs> I think Job and then I, that's it. And Jesus. That's it. So, but all that to say, like, it's this concept that comes up in some very implicit ways, but also some extremely explicit ways. And Revelation being a final judgment on Babylon, the villain of Revelation being Babylon or, or Satan in Babylon. Yep. And you're reading this as somebody who's maybe familiar with the story in Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel or in some of the prophetic literature with stuff against Babylon. And you're like, man, I, I've experienced that. I know exactly what that's like. And then you open Revelation and see, oh man, God has a final word for the thing that is oppressing me, whether it's the Babylon outside or the Babylon in my own heart that causes me to live a particular way. It's just so compelling and so fascinating and really makes revelation personal. Yep. And so you don't normally hear revelation and personal in the same sentence, you know, personally, I don't read revelation. That's usually how I would hear it. And so <laughs> what is your advice to somebody who wants to jump into the book of revelation? Like it seems so impenetrable. Is it? And if it isn't, what are some pieces of advice you can give to people for them to really get a lot of me out of that book? Three things. Three things. Number one, uh, don't like set your expectations for Revelation to be something that you understand more over a lifetime of Bible reading. So the, the real challenge, I think part a big part of why we struggle with eschatology is because it is so thick with Old Testament prophetic language. We're, these Revelation, Matthew 24 and 25, these are incessantly referencing Joel 2, Zechariah, Daniel sections, like the sort of back half of Daniel, they're referencing Isaiah and Ezekiel. Those are long, big books. And and that's all rolling off the tip of the tongue of the authors. For me, you know, and I don't know about you, for, you Hunter, but like for me, it has taken me a lot of reads of those kinds of things to, to sort of get that stuff in my veins in a way to where I pick up the references. And I'm getting them faster now than I used to, but there's a long way to go for me. So one of the things I would say is expect your Bible reading project in your life to be long and, and regular. Um, I like the image of compound interest here a lot. The idea that like, that like if, right, if I invest $100 and I get a 10% return on that investment, I have $110. But then when I invest the $110, my 10% investment is now is, is now an additional hundred is now an additional $11. Uh, it's not an additional $10, it's an additional $11. And if you keep doing that over time, that 10% becomes a larger and larger and larger portion to where the, int the interest compounds, right? You get more and more, um, you get more and more money with e each, each time you reinvest that money. And I think it's the way the Bible works, that you, you end up getting larger and deeper and bigger um, returns on it as you do it over a period of time. But also like compound interest, it, it works itself out over a long period of time. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, expect that accordingly. Number two, um, I think when you read Revelation, do your very best 
to resist the temptation to go to go interpret the symbols outside of the nature of the book itself. Yes. Try to stay in the story of the book. Try to understand it. Revelation is full of wild, huge concepts uh, in significant ways that are creative and interesting and all of this. Now, John clearly thought this was relevant to his people. He sent it as a letter to seven churches in Asia, in, in modern-day Turkey. So, you know, for him, this was practical in some way or another. But I think part of the practicality of it is actually to raise us outside of the the complacency of the day-to-day and to recognize the scope um, of, of, of uh, the scope and the timeline of some of these events in terms of like spiritual realities. It's very easy to get stuck. I mean, they lived in a spiritually full world. People believed in all kinds yeah. of spirits all over the place, right? We tend to live in a sort of naturally rationalistic world. So it really, I think to like try to take yourself into the story in a way that um, expands your, your mental scope to include like, hey, these are actually heavenly things going on in this big and grand way and they're much bigger than I think and it's not just as simple as like you know I don't know fixing a policy and everything gets better or something like that right like it's like actually there's like a bigger thing going on here so try to stay in that story as much as possible and just and and go along through the story so that's number two number three um, try to stay connected to people especially Christian missionaries who are suffering in some way in your life um and what I what I mean is, if you can do something like like something that I've done is like subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs a magazine, uh, where like where they're just chronicling where Christians are suffering in the world for the gospel. I think Revelation is especially written towards suffering saints as they take the gospel to the nations, which is also very much the context of of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew twenty four and twenty five. Um, and so, when you stay connected to them and towards suffering generally in the world, uh, then perhaps there's some more um, awareness of why there is so much suffering because the problem is a lot bigger than you think as you go into those sort of imaginative places and uh, in terms of the the visuals of Revelation. Um, and then also, perhaps also you can rejoice a little bit more in the victory that's promised there because the suffering is really real and it hopefully allows you as you see some of that stuff unfold to sympathize more with it, but then also to... Um, to hope, hope for the end of it, and to really see the storyline as practical and important. So all of those things, I think, paired together, that makes Revelation the book I want to read next yeah. in my Bible study. Uh, you know, I mean, when you asked me to do this, I had to brush up on some stuff, to, like because I'm the same as everybody else. Like I, I'm not thinking about it like this all the time, but I was like, oh man, I got to go read this again. Like I had this exact same reaction. Yeah, and I, I've liked Revelation. I think I've liked it for like the edginess. Oh, Revelation with favorite book of the Bible. And then you read it and you read other smart people who have read it and studied a lot about it. And it's like, oh my goodness, there's so much richness here. I, I can recommend one book that is a little bit, I wouldn't say controversial, just not in, on a lot of people's bookshelves. It's called Reading Revelation Responsibly by a guy named Michael Gorman. And I like Michael Gorman a lot. He's a theologian I really respect. He's a Methodist theologian. And, and um, Reading Revelation Responsibly just takes so much of the revelation story and does exactly what you say, yep. tie it into the book. Doesn't tie it into what happens now or what might happen later, but it ties it into the context of the book. And he talks about revelation as like a little bit like SNL or the daily show. Like it's basically John using um, really intense old Testament biblical imagery to show you that the powers of this world are just a farce. And when you have that lens on you, read Revelation, it's such an interesting read. Mm. And you don't get caught up in the, what is this? Where is that? When is this? It's like, oh my gosh, this story is so relevant for me today because the powers of the world are still powerful and they still affect us and impact us today. I love that, Andrew. 
so so much to. to I've, I've never to read just, that book. I've heard it's great. It's really good, and yeah. also uh, Richard Bacham, great theologian, the has revelation. a yeah. really small. I have it over there. Really small revelation. Yeah, I was actually flipping back through that again before we talked today. It's really so good. Really good yeah. book. Um, so I'm really thankful, Andrew, for the way you brushed up, and I think you just gave us a incredibly in-depth yet brief conversation about Jesus forever. And so I want to end with this, this idea that Jesus and, and the end times and everything, whatever, but like there's a call that comes in scripture of we're going to be with him forever. What does that mean? Like, how can I understand that? And then like, what would you say to someone who really needs to hear that? Like what's, what's the hope of, of forever with Jesus? Yeah. So uh, let's, let's come back to, Here's the way in this, which I think this is practical. Uh, let's come back to where we started, which was this comment that sort of people are aware of the darkness in the world um, in these really significant ways. Um, and they're aware of like transcendent things at the same time. Uh, and those two sort of layer on top of each other. And that observation um, for me has been kind of the key thing that powers the way that I think about hope in the Christian life. Actually, the, the number one influence for me on this has been the singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson, uh, who you've heard me talk about a lot, Hunter, but uh, he's written a lot of songs that reference this kind of idea of sort of being clued in to those and to being really clued into darkness and, um, and pain in these really big ways, and then that leading him into a real longing, in, sometimes in his own life, sometimes things around him, all these things, to a real longing for... Jesus to return and, and get things right. And so I think as we are attuned to pain in the world, one of the things that uh, Christian hope allows us to do is to actually sort of in some ways be free to go even deeper into them, to, to, to take them a little more head on with the hope that there really will be an end to them. There really will be a fix that, uh, that, that uh, all of this darkness uh, is a small and passing thing. And that, that as you feel it, as you go into it, you can go into it with eyes wide open for the reality of the pain because you can also go into it with eyes wide open for Jesus is going to actually make all things new. He's going to make things right. Um, and so for me, like that possibility, I think, is one of the ways that you stay alive and awake to those things in the world and then alive and awake to, to how to love people well and how to meet God where he's at work in powerful ways um, and to give people who have no hope real hope um, about things being actually better at some point. Um, so there's that. And then as far as like what it will actually be like, I, I, I mean, I think, you know, there's some ways in which I don't know, right? Of course, um, if, if I would have tried to guess what the Messiah would be like from the old Testament in the first century, like, well, Jesus, Jesus actually really obliterated people's expectations, even though it all actually was stuff that was in the Bible. Like he's able to show how the prophets pointed to exactly what happened. However, it still was different than he they expected. So I, I always want to be a little bit uh, careful here. The things I'll say is it's physical. It is involving a new creation. Uh, it's it's a new heaven and a new earth. It's not like the earth goes away for forever and we go to the clouds or whatever, um, but that uh, there's physical redemption. And then of course, like these pictures in Revelation 21 of like no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more any of that kind of stuff. Um, I think that's... Uh, that's probably the main thing I would I would look at. The physical thing is the thing I think people sort of most often right. mistake. Um, but uh, but yeah, there will be bodies. There will be us. I think we'll recognize each other. Uh, and um, and yeah, uh, all of all of this darkness is a small and passing thing as we wait for it. Dogs are they there? I don't know. Oh, don't tell <laughs> me that. Don't tell me that. Well, speaking of dogs, 
Andrew, my probably dog. not in my in wherever I end up living. You and Sean both, man. Yeah. I was gonna make a. I said, and speaking of dogs, yeah. Andrew, my dog. Thank you so much for yeah. uh, the conversation. I really, really appreciate it. I think people are really gonna come away learning a ton. Last thing, what's one resource you just point somebody to if they want to dive deeper into the eschatology world? Kind of as we've been talking about it. I don't have a good answer to this question as far as like a book or a resource or anything like that. What I would say, if you want to go deeper into this, what I would say to do is to read the key texts of scripture as often as possible and as in large chunks as possible. Mm. So start with Matthew 24 and 25 because it's not that long. You might actually start in 23. Um, but if you do that and just read it as as much as possible uh, like and just be attentive to the text, just try to be really attentive to the text Um <laughs> That I think would would be a, a really good place to start. Probably uh, would be to just just try to read the text, and I, by as much as possible, I mean like try and read it like ten times. Like wow, not like in one sitting or anything, but just like try and get there and just follow the story as much as possible. Um, and you can, yeah, you, you can yeah. follow the story. Yeah, it's a story worth following yeah. and that's able to be followed. So thanks, Andrew. So Appreciate it, man. There, there's one last thing, which is one last uh, thing that I didn't say very well is that the actual final point of the story too is not just the end of suffering, but it's actually presence with Jesus. And, um, and I think that's the other thing that we're like longing for here is that like, as that's ultimately the thing God delivers us to in the cross and the resurrection, that's the thing sin keeps us from. Yeah. Um, and the thing that we are ultimately delivered to. So that's why in the center of all of this stuff is not only just the reduction of pain, but also presence with the real love of God for me in a, in a way that is like deeper and more real and more powerful than I possibly could even know, uh, you know, immeasurably more than we could ever ask or think, right? Uh, that kind of idea. Um, and so that's the other thing to be looking forward to here is like to actually know God now, but then to also look forward to a time when like our depth of knowledge of God and our love for God and our knowledge of his love for us will be um, expansive and the dwelling place of God will be with man and, you know, he'll be our God and we'll be his people. There you go. That's a really good way to end it. Jeremiah 31. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it. And uh, let's go sing some REM at karaoke tonight. Okay. See you there. (laughs)